If you have your Bibles open, please turn to John 15. John 15, we are studying the gospel according to John together. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Hey, brother, can you grab that? John 15 is where we find ourselves. Verses 1 through 11 is our scripture reading this morning. John chapter 15, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bear, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things. Verse 11. I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So if you have children, they're invited to go to Children's Church. The rest of us are in John 15 together. Our series is called The Gospel According to John the Invisible Made Visible. What I want to do as we look at chapter 15 together and we jump into this new chapter, what I want to do is I want to look at this chapter in four separate headings. And the first one really has to do with, with a recap, but I want to call it the context. Context is so important when studying scripture um, all the time, but even more so today because there are verses that we're going to look at that have been taken out of context and used in a wrong way. So we're going to look at the context of this metaphor. Jesus launches into this metaphor about the vine and the branches, and we have to understand context. Then we'll look at the characters. We'll look at the Father's work, the Son's work, and where we are in that vine. Then as we look at the contrast of the branches that are broken off, cut away, and thrown into the fire in the branches that he prunes that bear more fruit. There's a contrast there. And then we'll conclude in verse 11 about joy. Context first, very important. Thursday night, it's the Passover meal. Hours before Jesus will be arrested, falsely accused, and crucified. The Jewish people have gathered in Israel to celebrate the Passover, uh, remembering the angel of death that passed over every Israelite home, while in Egypt, because of the substitutionary blood of a slayed lamb in their home. And here, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is who takes away the sins of the world, is, is sharing a meal, this Passover meal, with them. It's Thursday night. What I want us to see, if you have your Bibles... 
Turn with me to chapter 12. I want you to see something very important. Chapter 12, verse 19. This is right before, it's Passover season, but it's right before dinner. And John wants us to see a very important transition that's taken place before the Passover meal has begun. And you'll see why in a little bit. Chapter 12, verse 19. The Pharisees, religious leaders, get together and they say to one another, verse 19, Look, the whole world has gone out to see him, or gone after him. Immediately, verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Jesus then hears that these Greeks had gone up and wanted to see and talk with Jesus and look at Jesus' response. You follow me in chapter 12. Philip, come to him and Andrew and say, listen, the Greeks are here, they want to they talk to you. And Jesus says to them, verse 23, the hour has come. Kind of, a, kind of a weird response. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You see that? I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Understand what's going on. The Israel nation as a whole has been in continuing their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. We see now John triggering at the mission of Jesus has reached the whole world, including the Greeks. And that, that explosion of this worldwide mission as the Jews are rejecting him and the, and the world is going after him, Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come, the hour has come. It hasn't come up to this point, but now it's come. It has come, he's talking about his death, his substitutionary atonement on the cross in which he will suffer. And immediately, if you're following with me in John 12, immediately at that point, the lights go out for the nation of Israel. Not for the people per se, but the nation as a whole rejects them. Look at verse, chapter 12, verse 36. John reaches back into the Old Testament prophecies and explains why the hardening of Israel has taken place. He says, just like Isaiah has said, that uh, though many believed in him, or excuse me, though he had done many signs, verse 37 of chapter 12, they still did not believe him. He's talking about the nation of Israel. So the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? The answer is no one. And to whom the arm of the Lord has been revealed. Therefore, they could not believe. Talking about the nation. For again, Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. But the nation of Israel are hardening their heart, just as Isaiah said, they could not, they will not believe. And then in verse 42 of chapter 12, follow with me. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. They were afraid of being put out of the synagogue, for they love what? The glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That is a statement, a signal saying that they weren't real believers. They cared more about the glory of man, not the glory of God. So two very important things going on as we enter into the upper room and starting in chapter 13. Israel rejection and make believers, fake believers. Okay, I want you to see that. It should be no surprise. John makes it clear in John chapter 2. Many people saw his signs. Jesus did not believe they're believing. John chapter 4, Jesus returns to Galilee He's welcome because the signs that they saw him do, the miracle worker, it was fake. Their belief was fake. It was not of faith. They didn't believe in the Messiah. They wanted a miracle worker. John chapter 6, very important. John chapter 6, verse 64. 
Jesus gathers his disciples together, it says in John 6, 64, and he tells his disciples, there are some of you, disciples, who do not believe. John adds, for Jesus knew from the beginning who were, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus gathers his disciples and says, some of you don't believe, disciples, and one of you is going to betray me. And then as we get to the upper room, John 13, we know who that is. Who is the one, Lord? John asked. The one I give the morsel to. John 13, 26. He dipped the morsel gave it to Judas. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said, go, man. What you're going to do, do it quickly. And out into the night he goes. So the context going into chapter 13, this upper room discourse, includes the rejection of Israel, fake disciples, a disciple who will betray him. And we also know because Jesus said to his disciples, I'm leaving, I'm going. There's a sense of I'm not going to be around anymore. I'm not going to be able to care for you as I have done. I'm going and you cannot come with me. There was, there was confusion on their part. There was, they were afraid, they were troubled. They sensed a, an aloneness that was about to take place. And out of love, it says in John 13, out of love, Jesus, instead of caring only about himself, knowing what was ahead of him, brutal execution on the cross, the Bible tells us in John 13, he loved them and he gathers them. He comforts them. He teaches them. He loves them. He cares for them. Paul says love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not insist on its own way. And we see Jesus living that out. So this, this, this fear, this aloneness, this, this despair, has trouble has come upon the disciples. Judas is gone. Israel has rejected him. There are believers and unbelievers and fake believers in, uh, among them. And Jesus says in John 14, trust me. Trust in God, trust also in me. Trust me in your fears, trust me in your future, trust me in your wandering, trust me as you witness. I will not, we saw this last week, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He, He will come to you, he will be in you, he will be with you. It'll be almost as if I'm with you. I'll be with you, the Father will be with you, we'll make our home with you. There's going to be union, you're not going to be alone. He then, in verse 27 of chapter 14, says, Peace I leave you. My peace I will give to you, not as the world gives you. Don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you'll rejoice, because I'm going to the Father. If you love me, you'll rejoice. I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Last week we said it's not ontological, it's not essence and nature. Jesus was of the same essence and nature of God, one God, three persons, but in his subordinate role, in his humanity as the suffering servant, he was submissive to the Father. And Jesus says, I'm going home, rejoice, I'm going back to glory. Rejoice for me. I'm going back to glory, the Father has everything under control. I'm going back to glory, you'll have a permanent presence, the Holy Spirit will come. He'll be in you and with you, just as I am. And there'll be a permanent presence propitiation, the atonement that Jesus Christ makes for us, he himself will be in the very throne room of God as our advocate. And then we finished last week, I just want to look at this one last thing, in chapter 14, verse 29, we never got to it. Very important transition. And now I've told you before it takes place, John 14, 29, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I'm giving you a heads up. 
Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you. Why? For the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. Who's coming? Judas is coming. The one Satan entered into is coming. But, but Judas or the Satan has no, has no claim on me. Verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Remember, chapter 15 opens. There's no, there's no verses. There's no, it's a scroll. There's no, there's, no, there's no verses. There's no, this is just one letter John is writing, right? So 15 rolls right into that. What does it mean, rise, let us go from here? Some commentators think Jesus at this point in, in his discourse with them in the upper room gets up from the table, maybe they're doing a little bit of cleaning up, getting ready to go, and he continues with his metaphor. Just like you and I do when people come to our house, we put our coats on and we're standing by the front door talking for 15 more minutes. Right? Instead of just letting them go. We're talking, we're walking out to the car, we're talking as possible. Other commentators think, which I think is, is very probable, is that they rise up and they left and Jesus is talking and still talking and, and communicating and, and sharing with them as they leave the upper room and they head toward the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where they're going. Maybe going through the city gates and seeing the, the vine that's hanging over the, temple, uh, the front of the temple or, or through the Kindred Valley into the Mount of Olives and headed toward Gethsemane. They see maybe grape vines along the way. And Jesus is now you know, going, to, going to share with them this metaphor, this, this parable, this, this analogy of vine and the branches that could be possible, I don't know. But I want you to understand the context here. Israel has rejected them as a whole. There are fake and make-believing disciples. Judas, the closest one, to, one of the closest ones to Jesus, is the betrayer. He is gone. He's coming back with a band of soldiers. The, the disciples are confused, they're alone, they're, they're troubled, they're, 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 they're hurting, they're, 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 they're bewildered. And Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you, man, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you in the power and the presence of the Spirit, my peace be with you, rejoice with me. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. See that context. And look what Jesus says. There's two characters I want to look at right away. His first is, I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, mark that in your Bible, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus, the true vine, Father, the vine dresser, gardener. Although the vine gives life to his people, the Father is not some sort of backdrop. He trims, he prunes the branches. See that? He is at work, he's the gardener, he's the viticulturist, they say, the, the, the master grape grower. He's the vine dresser, and he is supreme control of the pruning and the cutting away of the branches. Just as Jesus said, the Father is greater than I. They're in union together with this, with this vineyard. But the Father is in charge of cutting away and pruning in Jesus' subordinate role as divine. He is working, yes, in complete union with the Father. Now, this metaphor, this metaphor of vine and, and branches is not new to the disciples. It's deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, speaking for God, said this in chapter 2. Jeremiah 2, I had planted you, Israelites, 
like a choice vine uh, of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Isaiah picks up this imagery of of Father creating and working in a vineyard in chapter 5, Old Testament again. Let me sing for my beloved my song, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, talking about God now, and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed it out of wine vat in it and looked for it to yield grapes. But it yield wild grapes. You get the kind of flavor, what's going on with ancient Israel, with this, with this idea, I've planted you, but nothing good's coming up. And then God threatens them and with judgment because of this wild olive, this wild grapes that are growing. In fact, if you continue to read Psalm 80, it says, Return to us, O God. Look down from heaven. Watch over your vine. The root your right hand has planted. The sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. You see what's going on? Then he says, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. Let your hand rest on the man on the right hand. The son of man whom you raised up for yourself. I hope that sounds familiar. He's talking about Jesus. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. That's why Jesus does not say to his disciples, I am the vine. My father is the vine dresser. That's not what he says. He says, I am the true vine, the genuine vine, the the, the one that endures the perfect, the genuine, the essential, the true vine that God's people are connected to. And again, in your Bible, you want to mark that I am. It's the seventh I am with the predicate that we've seen so far in John's gospel. It it is Jesus pointing back to Moses, Exodus 3, in the self-revelation of God in his eternity and self-existence. Jesus takes that name for himself because he is God. He says, I am the bread of life, eternally existing, self-expression, self-existing. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. They understood that. It points back. Jesus is is not only the fulfillment of the Feast of Israel. We saw that in Passover. We saw that in the Feast of Booths. Jesus replaced the temple, John 2. Destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up again. He's talking about his body. Jesus is the true and better Moses, John 6. And now here in John 15, Jesus replaces, or I should say, the placement of God's people now is in the vine, the true vine, which is Jesus Christ. And the Father, the vine dress, is working on the vineyard. Now, what we'll see here is the contrast between the branches that are destroyed and the branches that bear fruits. Right? There are two kinds. Both of them are worked on by God, the gardener. He, he's the expertise gardener, uh, viticulturist who is, who is caring for his vineyard. He is seeing to it that the fruit on his vineyard, in his vineyard, will bear the fruit that he attends it, intends it to bear. That includes our life, right? We're the branches. Disciples 
aware of what's going on. In fact, grape growing in Israel was very popular in that day and very popular in this day. And the vine dresser has two duties. First, he cuts off fruitless branches, which take away sap from the fruit-bearing branches. Wasted sap prevents a good harvest of grapes. I was telling my wife last night, as I'm studying this, I'm not a farmer, uh, and I'm studying this about vineyards. Now I know why I haven't had Concord grapes, which we have a vineyard in our, in our backyard, a small one. I'm not a vineyard, but a, 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 a strand of vines. I haven't had a grape since I moved in. I haven't done nothing to it. I'm a lousy vine dresser. I've got to figure out how to really get grapes from there because they've completely vanished since I've been taken over. Um, but not God, right? So God knows what he's doing. He is, he is cutting. He is pruning. He is trimming shoots from the fruit-bearing branches so that all the sap is concentrated to the, to the branches that will bear fruit. The contrast is really simple. God is, 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 is the vine dresser. He is taking away fruitless branches and pruning the fruitful branches, very simple in the text. He cuts away the lifeless, he cuts away the lifeless, and he cultivates the living. He, he destroys and he gives life to the plants. Now let me give you a word of caution. Caution. When you read your Bibles and you read parables, analogies, metaphors... You have to be careful that you don't go too far. You get in a lot of trouble reading into something that's not really there. And theologians, especially in, in um, long, you know, hundreds, five, six, seven, eight hundred years ago, made a lot out of something that's not even there. Usually, usually, generally speaking, metaphors, parables, things of that nature, less is better than more. Get to the simple, clear teaching and, and you'll be safe. The main idea of this metaphor is, is rather simple to some degree. It's how does God's genuine children abide in Christ, union with Christ, show itself? How, 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 how God's genuine children abide in Christ, showing themselves, proving themselves to be genuine because they bear fruit. They, they are showing themselves and proving themselves by the fruit in which they bear. That's the point of the metaphor. Verse 8 tells us that. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Okay? It's not how to be in union. It's the result of abiding in Christ. I say all that because there are some who look at verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit is taken away. Verse 6, they say, then they're thrown away like a branch and withers, gathered together, thrown into the fire and burned. And they say, see that you could be a Christian, you could be in vital union, you could have eternal life and be lost. Burned in the fire. The eternal life that Jesus promised you is no longer eternal. Uh, the, the, the day in which he was sealed by the Holy Spirit onto the day of redemption, there's no longer a seal. Well, Peter will tell us the, 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 the inheritance in First Peter that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven, guarded by the power of God, is no longer available to you. That's what they teach. There is so much wrong with that. I could go on for hours. I won't. Let me just keep it right in the context. John chapter 6, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
And this is the will of him, God, who sent me, that I lose nothing of all that is given me, but raise him up on the last day. I lose nothing, not a branch, not a twig. I lose nothing. In fact, he says, this is the will of the Father that I lose nothing. If there was a branch that was connected in union with eternal life that Jesus lost, he's in sin because he didn't follow the will of the Father. That's a real place, to, bad place to be. That cannot be true. John 10, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That includes you jumping out of her. That's silly uh, a, a while back. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given to me is greater than all. That all would include you. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father's hand, I and the Father are one. Family, if Jesus is talking about true, genuine life, eternal life believers who are genuinely grafted into this vine, taking life from this vine, and then at some point God looks down and inspects the fruit and doesn't like what he sees, gets fed up with you, he just kicks you to the curb and burns you in the fire. That contradicts everything Jesus taught and antithetical to the New Testament. That cannot be what the branches are here. The branches are in contrast to those who are genuine believers and those who are not genuine believers. How do you know that? The context. That's why I spent time on that. They are either, take your pick, really, fake believers who claim they know Christ and they don't. They're looking at his miracles and they want nothing to do with him. It could be Judas, who was very connected with Jesus, walked with him for, for three years, and now he's gone, he's cast off as a son of perdition. Or it could be the nation of Israel. Read Romans 11. It talks about the vine that was grafted out so that the Gentiles can be grafted in. There are so many places in Scripture that talk about what looks like they're connected, but really don't bear fruit. The branches that don't bear fruit are cut off, do not represent true believers, but rather those who think they're Christians, right? They go to church, they pray a prayer one day, they've been brought up in a Christian home, but they lack the genuine evidence that they are believers. They lack the fruit of Christ-likeness in their lives. Judas was attached. John would go on to write something very interesting. The same John, the same author. John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 2 is one of his, his first epistles. This is what he says. They, part of the community of faith, part of the people in the church, I should say, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been with us or been one of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They smelt like us, they looked like us, they dressed like us, they talked like us, they weren't part of us. The great example of what Jesus is teaching is really right in front of us. is Judas and his Peter. Right? I mean, that's the great example. It's Judas and his, and his Peter. I mean... One was being destroyed and the other one was being disciplined. One God cut off, that would be Judas. The other one, he cultivates. Judas was certainly a branch, had real contact with him, but yet the Bible says that he hung himself. Yet Peter, in his discipline, uh, Jesus says, Satan demanded you, demanded of you, but I'm praying for you, Peter. And when you turn, after your denial, when you turn, strengthen your brothers. If I had to put 
one interpretation on this. I, I think it could mean fake believers. I think it could mean Israel. I would say when Jesus talked about this branch, I would lean toward it being Judas. And here's the reason why. If you had 12 men who lived life together, we're not talking about in community group every two weeks, we're talking about morning, noon, and night, living life every single day for three years, eating, drinking, ministry together all day, every day for three years, there's 12 of you. And now there's 11. I'm like, where's Judas? He got up and left. John knew what happened. I mean, there's someone missing among you, man. The dude, he was with them every day. Every day we were with him. There's a branch that looks like he's connected. He's not bearing fruit. He's cut off. I would say he's talking about Judas. Could be fake believes. It could be, it could be Israel. But oh my word, I believe there was such a, a heavy-heartedness of the disciples and all that's going on, Judas is gone. I, 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 think, I think we can actually honestly say that that was going on. Now, let me give you a word of caution, caution as well again. When Jesus and the Bible talks about fire, it talks about bundles, it talks about thrown into the lake of fire, it talks about judgment, um, it's serious. And we really have to just stop here and say, this is a serious warning. Are you truly abiding in Christ? Have you genuinely repented of your sins and trusted wholeheartedly, completely on the finished work of Christ on the cross as he died for your forgiveness and for your salvation? Fruit is not, listen, fruit does not save you. Faith alone in Christ alone, it's by grace alone. But fruit is the evidence of a genuine salvation experience. Don't leave here today without pinning all your hope on Christ. Who said in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to, uh, to you, whoever hears my words and believes, hears and just believes, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. Why? Jesus bears our judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's about Christ. It always has been. But are you abiding? Is there fruit in your life where you could say, yes, Christ is in me? So what does it mean? What does it mean to be? Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're wondering, what does it mean to abide? Well, abiding means what, John, what Jesus said in John 14, 20. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's mutual union. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. Jesus said, I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. There is union. But what I want us to see first and foremost is that abiding in Christ begins, abiding in Christ begins with the new birth. It is the work of God. Abiding in Christ begins with the work of God, not your work, you can't earn it, but begins with the gift of God called grace in the new birth. Now, where do I see that? Look at verse 2 and 3 with me again. Every branch that bears fruit does bear fruit. He prunes that it may what? Bear more fruit, right? You see that? Then verse 3, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, already you are clean. Already you are clean because the word I've spoken to you. Really? Well, the word clean, the word prune, they come from the same word. It's actually a play on words. You're already pruned. You're already cleaned. In farming, I understand. Again, I'm not a farmer. In farming, I understand it could refer to uh, whisking uh, corn. Uh, cleaning corn or, or cleaning the dirt of soil before you plant or cleaning and cleansing the, the vine from insects and things that will kill the vine. 
in the metaphor here, Jesus is talking about pruning. He's talking about uh, um, uh, snipping and, 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 and cleaning shoots off the branches so, so that they would grow either more slow or the sap would go to places that would actually bear more fruit as he prunes. But what does he mean you are already clean, you are already pruned? Hmm. Have we heard that somewhere? Yeah, John 13. Moments before this, Jesus gets a towel, gets on the ground, and starts washing his feet of the disciples. Peter's like, dude, you are not washing my feet. And Jesus' like, listen, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. Peter's like, all right, give me a whole bath then. If, it, if that has to do with it, give me a shower. And Jesus says to him in John 13, 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. Same word. But not every one of you. Why? He knew who would betray him. That's why he said not all of you are clean. Remember we said that Jesus is looking forward to the, to the cross and the, the cleansing power of the substitutionary lamb on the cross, washing them, giving them new birth. And now here he says, you're clean. You're pruned. You're already in the vine. That's what he's saying to them. Not everyone. Judas is gone. He's the branch that was thrown in the fire. He's not there. You, though, are all clean. To abide in Christ is first the work of God. New birth that gives life. Christ's life in us. Number two, to abide in Christ means pruning is coming. It's not that they're not going to be pruned. They're already clean, but pruning is coming. And I said to the first service, everyone in unison say, ouch, because pruning hurts, doesn't it? And yet, yet our experience of union with Christ is strengthened as the Father uh, controls the external workings of our lives and he's pruning us. It is the vine dresser uh, uh, doing the work. He's pruning and he's cutting and he's caring. And all that has an intense bearing on our experience of living and abiding in the sap, in the, in the life of Christ. How does he do that? Well, two ways. Difficulties and discipline, doesn't he? It's that 3 a.m. phone call. Jump out of bed. Rocks your world. It's the wayward child that keeps you up. It's the betrayal of a spouse, the loss of a job. A phone call from a doctor. The father is doing work and removing everything that would prove detrimental to the most fruitful harvest. Family, the vine dresser's work is masterful, it is perfect, and it is purposeful. The work of the Father as the vine dresser causes us to narrow our focus and, and strengthen the quality of the fruit in which we bear. And however it's done, however God chooses to do it, family, it's always loving, it's always that He cares for us, and He wants us to bear fruit. He wants us to be free from the shoots that drain our lives and energy. He wants to keep us spiritually healthy and productive. He wants to remove things in our lives like bad habits. He reorders our wrong priorities. When difficulties come, the first thing we do is pray all the time. changes our corruptive values and we value things higher than him. Paul, in the midst of suffering, wrote this. 
We were utterly burdened beyond strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever felt that before? Indeed, we felt that we have received the sentence of death. You just want to die. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. On him, we have set our hope. Knowing the Father prunes with expertise and love and concern should change the way we see trials and difficulties in our lives. He does not allow us to experience problems and struggles with no purpose. He permits it and designs it so that we bear more fruit through difficulties and next through discipline. He disciplines us. Hebrews 12, 6, and we should find comfort in it. It says, the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness for the moment All discipline seems painful, right? Rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Pruning hurts. The fruit, though, is worth it. It's holiness. Sometimes this discipline comes through preaching of the word, through conviction of even unbelievers, through sharing with your community group, and those who love you may rebuke you in love. But one thing we can be sure, it is masterful. Sometimes discipline comes when God takes things from us. Things that we know to be good, but have become ultimate, and our values and our love affair of it becomes too much. But remember, the Lord's discipline is always a response of love. He desires for us to share in His holiness. It is always corrective by a God who loves you. And it's always by grace. There's a man by the name of Jerry Bridges. He passed away this year. He wrote several books, awesome book, one called The Discipline of Grace. He writes this, All of God's disciplinary processes are grounded in His grace. His unmerited, unconditional favor toward us. We tend to equate discipline with rules and performance standards. God equates it with firm but loving care for our souls, end quote. God is working, but I want you to notice the balance with me. Look at verse 4. There, there is the work of giving life and, 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 and pruning. Verse 4 and verse 5 is a command to believers, There's a a mystical, spiritual, faith-based union with Christ. I get that. But there's also a practicality and a command of verse 4. Abide in me. There's a command. Abide in me and I in you. As the branches cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you, believer, abides in me. And I am in the vine, you are in the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. To remain, to abide. Leon Marsh writes, To live in such a manner that you are at home in me, and that I am at home in you. Abiding in the vine means complete dependency upon Christ for life. Complete dependency upon the Father who prunes, because no one bears fruit. Look what it says, unless you abide, apart from me, you can do nothing. 
There's the work of God, and there is the command that he gives us. Dr. Carson, a New Testament scholar, I quote him often. He had a great book on John. This is what he wrote. Now listen to me. D.A. Carson writes, This abiding is an organic growth. It's internal growth, driven by the pulsating life of the vine, which is Jesus, in the branch. And only this kind of growth produces fruit, life in Christ, producing fruit. He says, The imagery of the vine is stretched a little, though. When the branches are given the responsibility to remain in the vine. But the point is clear. Continuous dependence on the vine, constant reliance upon him, persistent spiritual embedding of his life. This is the, what he says, sine qua non in Latin means, indispensable of, fruit, uh, of spiritual fruitfulness, end quote. There's the life of Christ. But think that a little bit, what what we have a command to do. And just like Carson says, and we've already seen, new birth, new life begins by grace through faith alone. It It is God's work in us, but we are also called to respond and take responsibility in this abiding. And how do we do it? Look at verse 7. If you abide in my what? My word. How do we abide? What do we need to do? We need to be in his word. Right? That's what he's saying. There's no intimacy with Christ. Family, there's no intimacy and abiding in union with Christ without this. This is his revelation to us. And when we open up his word and we look through, through the gospel lens, I like to say, we're looking to it to see the beauty and the glory of Christ We're seeing our brokenness and our wickedness and the beauty and glory and love of the gospel. And as we open up his word, as we we keep it close to our hearts, our aim is to see Jesus and be changed by it. We open it in our minds and our hearts and our affections to the greatness of Christ so that we can love him more and more. The Bible says the Spirit drives us and points us to Christ. So number one, read his word. Number two, look at verse seven again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, what? Ask what you wish and it will be done for you. This means that our abiding is drinking in and drawing from nourishment from the vine through the conformity of his will. Ask me what you wish. I will do it if it's according to my will. So we want to know what the will of God is and we want to follow through it. Our thoughts, our affections are now Show us, we want to do it, I abide by following his commands, by doing what he asked me to do. Verse 8, this is my Father's glorified, that what? You bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciple. We're praying, we're in his word, and we're looking to bring him glory. That's what abiding means. Make make our prayers about his reputation, his glory, his honor, his dignity. Sometimes we act like God's this giant pinata in heaven. And we got a stick and we just want to beat it and get the blessings that fall down. But he's saying, listen, what abiding means and what fruit will grow is when we bring glory to him. We're dependent upon him. We are seeking his face. We are seeking his dignity, his glory through his word and by his spirit in prayer and obedience. That's what that all means. That's what that all means. And what is the fruit? What is the fruit that brings glory to God? Romans 1 tells us it's declaring and demonstrating the gospel. Galatians 5, look at another time. We see the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Serving Him, loving Him, praising Him. Hebrews 13 talks about the praise that comes from our hearts are actually fruits of the glory of God. 
Fruit-bearing is God's grace in us. It shows the world that we belong to him, brings him glory. We're trusting him, we're relying upon him, we're listening to him, we're walking with him. Not perfectly, family. Please hear that. Nobody's doing this perfectly. But it's a disposition of the heart. Right? It's a disposition of the heart. And look at verse 9. I love it. Listen to what this says. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. Do you catch the order? Love produces what? Obedience, not the other way around. When we love our children and we love up on them and we discipline them and we tell them to do what we want them to do and they obey, it's out of love. Leave love out of your relationship and you're going to have rebellious children. Love. 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 Love for God is the greatest motivator. Love will cause you to things that just duty will not. Love is the greatest cause, the highest cause, the greatest motivator, the deepest stimulus. You can make a list all you want, but love. Love is where the rubber hits the road. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Think about that for a minute. As the Father has loved me, your, your love for me, eternal, perfect, as you love me, I love you. Revel in that for a minute. As you love me, I'm loving them. What kind of love is that? That's not a half-hearted kind of love. And I would accept the half-hearted kind of love because I don't deserve any. But that's not what he says. He says, as the Father is loving me from eternity in the Godhead, from all eternity and all into eternity, I love you. I love you. Is it possible to get any better than that? This love is without beginning or end, without measure and modification. It is according to the great love that Christ has for us because of what the Father has for him. That's love. He concludes, these things I'm telling you. I'm telling you this all about the vine, all about the vine dresser, all about the branches, all about imbibing. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. In other words, everything I said, cleansing, you're already clean through the blood, dependent on your word by the spirit, prayer, obedience, knowing this kind of love that I've lavished upon you is the same love I have with the Father, will produce in you not just joy, look what it says, but complete joy, fullness of joy, an abiding, lasting joy. So we conclude by saying, if we struggle with bearing fruit, if you struggle with obedience, if you struggle with loving and being loved, understanding his love for you, you struggle in prayer, you're going to not be able to experience the fullness of joy. His joy, this joy, is not deterred by suffering or circumstances. Family, think about this for a minute. What can separate you from the love of God? What can separate you from being abiding in Him? What can separate you from new birth? What can separate you from prayer? What can separate you from reveling and glorying in the Word of God? What can separate you from doing what the Father has commanded you to do? What can separate you from allowing His love to fill you and, 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 and enjoying it and enjoying Him and loving Him and letting His love fill you to the point of spilling out in complete obedience because He's a good dad in heaven who wants us to follow him. What can take that from you? Nothing. 
No one. See, human joy in a fallen world will be at best short-lived and shallow, imperfect, until we are overcome and overtaken and experience the love of God in Christ Jesus. The love for which we were created, a mutual love that issues in obedience without reservation. My peace I give you. My love I give you. My joy will be in you. Loving people, serving people, and recognizing his love for us. That is the fullness of joy. Every branch in him, every branch in him will bear fruit. Be pruned and it hurts, but let the love of God abide in you. And you know, I mean, two quick things. Number one, I just want to say this to you. The you in this passage is not you personally. Abiding in Christ and growing in Christ and bearing fruit in Christ is a family issue. It's plural. You all can do nothing. You all are the branch. You all will, will not bear fruit. It's, it's, it's done in community, number one. And number two, I want to end with saying it, it really begins with being clean already. It is, begins and ends with the gospel. If you understand the gospel, if you understand the love that God has for you, if you understand that it's eternal and it's the love that the Father has for the Son is now in you because you are in the vine, you are clean, you are washed through the blood of Christ. If you understand that and continue to press that reality home, you'll pray. You'll joyfully follow. You'll joyfully pray. You'll joyfully read the word. You'll joyfully follow his commands because of all that Christ has done. God's joy will fill you because of all that Christ is to you. You belong to him. We're going to sing in a moment, all I have is Christ. Let me say two things. One, if you don't belong to him, Repent of your sins and believe on him. And say, all I have is you. I am a sinner. I am bound. I belong to go to the lake of fire. I I deserve hell, death. But you have died in my place, Lord Jesus, risen from the dead. All I have is Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ, let that be an encouragement to you as well. That all you have is him. Maybe you're being pruned at the moment. And he's trying to redirect you to all I have is Christ. Can we do that together? Let's respond together with all I have is Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the work that you have done. Lord, thank you for the new birth. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to pray. Thank you for the opportunity to follow. Thank you for the opportunity to experience your love in a way that we could never have done if not for the cross. We glory in the cross. We boast in the cross by which our Lord has been crucified. It is the power of God unto salvation. So, Father, help us to say and to sing with our whole heart, all I have is Christ.